you to um welcome back to the carbon times podcast as ever we're here to create interesting content to keep the conversation going around the global desire and the global need to work towards a more sustainable future we're very privileged today to be joined by dr james crosby who is head of sustainability with a with a big focus on business and facilities thank welcome james me, thank you for having me paul uh do you want to give our listeners a little bit of a background to yourself I would love to. So um, my background is I was overeducated and probably underutilized for quite a lot of my life. So I've got um, three degrees all in geochemistry, undergraduate at Manchester, uh, a master's degree at St. Andrews and PhD at Cambridge. And what I did is I studied the long term evolution of Earth's uh, chemical evolution, so to speak, geochemistry preserved in the rock record. And a big part of that is climate related science, because if you want to go back far enough, you have to look at ice cores, then you have to go into uh, old rocks and see what kind of proxy information you can get. And there's some really great work going on in the field. And when I finished my PhD, I had the opportunity to either stay in academia or make a transition into the commercial world. And Look, there's only so much additional research that I personally could contribute to, but I saw a massive opportunity to get involved with actual delivery of net zero targets and working in the business space. So made that transition into the commercial world. That's an interesting point. I'm um, see we we see that more over now. I think as my career has developed over the last you know 15 years, I've seen more and more more and more of that type of transition from you know that 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 academic world. But I think. Do you think part of that is is because there is more of a business need for it now than there ever has been? I think you know, as a we haven't even asked, a, I had a first discussion point yet, but I think that that's quite an interesting point there, right? I think. Do you think that that's driving some people from the world of academia to think to come and do something practical to make an actual difference? If I'm sorry, I won't get too sidetracked. There's two big drivers towards a lot of academics entering in the commercial world. Firstly is the massive growth associated with sustainability, commercial social responsibility and environmental social governance, all these jargon phrases. Basically, they need specialist uh, scientists that understand the problems at hand to be able to get into the world of uh, commercial. And it also, it now is a profitable industry to be in, so it's quite appealing to be in. And the second thing, which I won't get into too much, is academia's changed a lot. Um, it's become... Uh, it's, there's quite a lot of PhD students that don't necessarily go on to postdoc level, and then there's even less that go on from postdoc level to permanent uh, uh, employment. And then a lot of these permanently employed academics are seeing their pensions cut, and it just uh, overworked something called the casualization of pay. So a lot of them are now leaving as well because of the balance, the imbalance in the commercial versus academic world. Well, I guess then, you know, that uh, that mistakes in the academic world might be the commercial world's benefit in that circumstance, then, I guess. <laughs> let's let's hope for the best. We need as much talent out there as we can get. A hundred percent. And I think it is really in, it is really intriguing to see how that conversation has developed over over the over the years. You know, the, the sustainability agenda is we can't go anywhere without listening to the right conversations being held now, I think, at every level, which is which is the first time ever, you know, the first time ever that this is, it has been such an important thing. So 
I guess with a UK context, then that our government has committed in law to be, you know, net zero by 2050. From an in- industry point of view and a business point of view, do you think they're doing enough to to facilitate that journey? So I'd like to paint a picture, if that makes sense. Let's cool. go all the way back to uh, the first international panel on climate change. And then we take it all the way forward to today. And the most recent report has shown that, look, if we do nothing, we're going to hit 8.5 degrees Celsius of warming by 2100, which is catastrophic for numerous different reasons. And finally, these reports started to be taken very seriously, not only on a global level, but particularly at United Kingdom level. So what ended up coming out was the the Climate Act of 2008. That was a really big, a uh, uh, really big piece of legislation that was published. Mm-hmm. And we take that forward into the 2019 legislation act that actually means the uk legally will have to be net zero by 2050 Mm -hmm. and now we've got the establishment of the of the net zero um actual policy makers and stuff like that which is which is fantastic now what does that actually look like in the real world so the most obvious thing that we can see is the actual legislation so say from a business's point of view if you're above a certain size Uh, You have to undertake something called ESOS, which is an energy savings and opportunity scheme. The purpose of that is because the grid is dirty. It's 0.19 kilograms of CO2 per kilowatt hour. That's a lot of carbon when when you consider how many terawatts are being consumed in a year. Then you've also got streamlined energy and carbon reporting, which is another uh, piece of legislation that businesses of a certain size will have to undertake. Now, this has been around since ESOS phase one, I believe, was back in 2015, which is a start. And now we're in, this year is ESOS phase three year. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is great pieces of legislation that's actually beginning conversations because it's a mandated piece of legislation that needs to actually come into effect. Um, where are we going in the future? Well, look, this legislation only targets the biggest companies. You need to have a certain number of employees. You need to have a certain budgetary turnover. And what we're faci- what, what's quite likely to happen is that the requirements to become so-called ESOS eligible will now become more targeted at smaller and medium enterprises, SMEs, to enhance that conversation. Now, that's from a purely business point of view. If we're actually looking at a utility scale, the kind of conversations we need to be having are let's have no more uh, new non-renewable energy generation sources. That's the kind of legislation that would be in keeping with that kind of net zero mantra. We're not necessarily seeing that, especially while we've got foreign. So we import quite a lot of foreign LNG because we have to, which is yeah. fair. We have to. Mm-hmm. LNG is the best of a bad bunch. It's got lower emissions than coal and oil, but it's still very carbon intense. And then we also have these private connections, say, to France and different countries and don't necessarily know where that... At the end of the day, these are just electrons. It's just energy spinning around in a wire coming to the United Kingdom. You can't really say that this is a renewable source when you're just really grateful to have enough energy coming into your country in town. Yeah, like yeah, of course. So to take that all, all back into the question... Um, could the UK government be doing more? Look, of course, everyone can always be doing more, but it's net zero by 2050. And at the time of this recording, it's 2023. We've still got, what, 26 and a bit years left. I have every faith that we'll get there. 
it's nice actually to talk to people that have that same opinion right because there are there are so many skeptics out there that think you know you talk to people we i work heavily you know from a professional perspective i work heavily in the built environment and the range of feedback that you get from people across that industry is is immense you know that um where the conversations are being driven what the current market looks like etc it's it's huge you know it's it's a massive massive part of what we're doing and i think I've got every faith that based on the government's timeline, based on things like minimum energy standards for commercial and domestic properties, such high standards now for energy requirements for new buildings, you know, the the, the last iteration of the building regulations is, is really good, you know, from that yep. perspective. Um, all of that is driving that particular part of the world into the right into the right area. And I think the corporate world is... Well, one, they occupy a lot of buildings, right? So that's always going to be a key part of their ESG and wider journey. But I think more than that, the employee, the customer, the investor, and all of those other influencers backed up by the requirements of the government to keep legislating. I think those, those aspects are helping to drive the changes as well. Would you? What would you think about that? I mean, a really great example is Briam, right? So part of Briam is in order to to it's a it's a point based points based system, but uh, you can get Briam points, and you need to get a certain number of Briam points to be excellent or, or or outstanding that are directly related to your ability to have on site generation. For example, mm-hmm. these kind of pieces of legislations, it's it's a really big puzzle, and that's one of the pieces. So we need to make sure we've got lots of pieces to get there. So yeah. In essence, I agree. And we see we see a lot of we work heavily in the kind of the compliance aspect with minimum energy standards as well around EPCs. And what we see is at the upper level of the market that it's driven, you know, you've got access to to funding, access to debt, access, you know, to investors is more difficult if you've got lower performing buildings. You've also got attracting the tenants that you want is more difficult. Um, because they're looking for higher standards aligned to their own ESG requirements and also driven by the conversations they have from their employees as well. And I think some of that is generational that I think, you know, I like to think my there's a lot of people at my generation who are passionate about this, but nowhere near as many as there are in the in the in the, you know, the the kind of generations that come after us, I think. Would you how do you think about that? So. I mean, I've learned about climate change at GCSE level, right? Let's say someone that is a generation or two older than me, I won't disclose my age, but I was born in uh, before 2000 and after 1990, so to speak. Um, they wouldn't have necessarily studied these kind of things. So it's all kind of being learned on the fly for them. So they don't. it's harder to grasp the importance of it. So what I say to people that don't necessarily grasp the importance of it well, actually, okay, you know what? You know what's really expensive? Climate change. You know what else is really expensive? Energy costs. <laughs> All these technologies are so much cheaper than the grid. So mm-hmm. if I can't talk carbon to you, can I talk pounds? And that's a conversation that they, a lot of people can definitely have. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's one of the that's one of the great consequences, I guess, of of energy of sorry of 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 improving the way you operate, the way you think, the way that you inhabit buildings, the way that you use vehicles, the way all of those contributory factors which go into your scope one, two, and three emissions that you know you would have identified as part of your 
either ESOS program or one of the other reporting <laughs> programs that you'll be sitting in. But but all of that is 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 really helping as well to 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 drive the right drive everything in the right direction. Most certainly. I mean, my favorite thing, a phrase that I use a lot is greenest and ch- is cheapest and the energy that you don't consume is the cheapest energy you can consume. <laughs> so get yourself some self-generation capabilities, get yourself some more efficient infrastructure and make that pounds per meter per squared uh, cheaper. Do you know, I think when I when I sit here discussing it, you know, discussing these things and discussing the challenges and, and if we link it back to to the government and, and, and policy, I think one of the things we're missing in this in this country is I don't, actually I don't know if it exists globally in a in a very standout way, but it's for a key politician to really be in a position of influence and power to really drive this conversation and drive it in the right way without caveats, without the, you know, the rhetoric that we get from the UK government at the moment around, you know, sort of to uh, directly with a point you raised earlier around no new licenses for coal, for example. Yet that seems to be something that they're willing to explore with reasons that they're able to back up with, you know, different reports and, and, and whatnot. But from a, from a sustainability perspective, it's definitely not the right decision to be making. Well, so in terms of a key figure, so when I was a young lad, um, I'm American by birth, moved to the United Kingdom when I was six years old. Um, The first real exposure I had to climate change was Al Gore, right? So Al Gore famously lost the presidential election due to to the Florida recount. Mm -hmm. Um, But what he was, was the first large international public figure that wanted to give the inconvenient truth about climate change and as a result it kind of took on a whole new attitude not necessarily being adopted in the same way that he would have intended it to but it's 2023 we're talking 20 years 20 years ago now but it'd be great to have someone as influential as Al Gore in the United Kingdom policy making I think that yeah, I think that's really that's that's a a really good figure that didn't come to my head straight away. But you're right, I would agree with you in that context, especially as you know the the influence around the Paris Accord and everything as well. That, that you know and and how public he was about you know coming out with all with in support of that type of global response. I think was was something to be something to be proud of. You know, but again, it's like I don't know. It doesn't seem like you win an election on on that mandate at the moment. No, otherwise we'd have a green party political uh, pol- like so. They, so let, let's be let's be fair. In my opinion, I think the Green Party do an excellent job at the local level. Mm. Um, they they do have some some things that are really good, especially when you think about sustainability. The whole think local, think global, act local. This is really pays into the wheelhouse of the Green Party. I'm not a member of the Green Party. I'm not. There are many other parties out there, so to speak. Um, but then when we actually come to these larger government scale pol- policies. You know, you're going to have to talk about more than just the environment. Unfortunately, people want to talk about inflation. They want to talk about employment. They want to talk about, um, well, the cost of living crisis. And you can't just talk about uh, climate change and environmental policy. You need a bit more of a holistic approach. Mm. And, you you know, <laughs> that's kind of where they as a party may fall down. Well, do fall down, so to speak. Um but in terms of let's talk about the two main parties, right? We've got the Conservatives and we've got the Labour Party. Um, sure, talk a great talk. Labour Party haven't really had any strong influence since 2008. It's very much a Conservative government for 
a long time now. Um, and look, there's been some great things. I'm going to go back to the Climate Act of 2008. I'll talk mm -hmm. about the net zero policy, talk about the, the net zero um, committee, so to speak. So it's not like they've done nothing. Mm -hmm. It's 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 that that would be completely unfair to say they've done nothing, and it's also not fair to say they could have done more because it's a massive political party with lots of people pulling people in different directions. So the fact that they've gotten stuff done and it's actually starting to put the United Kingdom and its foreign territories on the right track, maybe they deserve a bit of credit there for that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it makes it it. It makes my my head hop back to some of the earlier podcasts now, and it seems like a distant memory, right? But I guess it's just a point of interest, I think, because you know you're 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 someone with the right mindset around you know how we all view sustainability and 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 how that's grown. Do you think the pandemic had any influence on on the general public's opinion or consensus towards the agenda? So I'll talk about my attitude about the pandemic. So I'm a avid cricket player, avid football player. I'm a big, I'm a extroverted character, hence I'm on a podcast. Um, so being stuck inside um, was not good for me. That's not me in my happiest place. My happiest place is being out and about. So even in my own mind, the, the sustainability agenda may have slid a little bit down on the on the agenda of things that I was thinking about. But one thing it did do, it was actually really good for the climate. Yeah. <laughs> if we look, it was, if you look at the Office of National Statistics, you look back into from March, uh, uh, from that particular year, it's just a huge negative uh, in terms of emissions, in terms of relative change since uh, industrial times. But what it did give people an opportunity to do was have nothing better to do other than stare at their screens. Mm. So hopefully, inadvertently, they would come up with... Uh, with reading a little bit more about sustainability is my is my thought process. But if you want my honest opinion, um, it, well, the pandemic was great climate, but there was other things even on my mind during the pandemic than than carbon emissions. Hmm. I think some of the some of the things that were pushed out were positive. You know, scientifically, they not all of them have a great amount of legs to stand on. But you know, things like the the clearing of the water in venice and you know generally the skies looking clearer because there was no plane tracks across the world you know and it was all of these types of things that were you know, sort of the, you know those messages came out you know there's subsequently been a lot of people you know sort of saying well hmm, it's, it's a massively minimal impact in terms of overall so we don't get carried away by that but i think that might have helped influence some minds as well because it's so visual but it was good. It was it was great for for some rewilding as well. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> it was it was great for rewilding. You could go out and you could smell some fresh air, and there's not a soul around you, not a car around you, and you realise just how much of this country is taken up by car space. Um, but in terms of look, it was good. The pandemic was good for the environment. That's that's the bottom line. But that would be the upshot, I guess. Yeah, yeah. There were so many factors that I think influenced people's opinions during the pandemic that. Was it good for the for the environment? Yes. Was it bad for some people uh, mentally? I'm talking about mentally, not physically. Yeah, um, yeah. Then, yeah, of course, of course. So, yeah.
but then I guess you know that was balanced by some of the positive stuff that we saw. So hopefully, you know, it's uh, <laughs> in a general in a general term, it's okay. <laughs> so, <Yeah>. <laughs> some something I find, you know, again, if if I think about it professionally as well as personally, is that every, there there isn't a golden bullet, a silver bullet, whatever, or a golden egg, whatever whatever the term might be that you think that that's going to solve everything overnight, and that there's one solution that's going to solve the globe's issues i mean i have a slight opinion about that which we might come on to later in terms of in terms of what the provision might be but as a, as an as as a uk uh, what is the best solution for us to be that net zero country how should we be producing our energy so in terms of pure technology base I guess, I guess, generally, yeah, like, yeah, because you know, without the technology, we can't do it. So, so that adds into the feasibility aspect. So, the way that I, when people ask me, how do I become net zero? I say, let's look at how you're consuming your energy from the grid in terms of what is its source. Let's have a look at how you're using that energy from the grid. How efficient are you? Let's have a look at how you're how you're getting around your fleet or your employee transport or something like this. And then the last one it's it's in the business it's called scope three right it's your your supply chains and your customers and stuff like that what are they doing mm. actually you need that's a really big part of it because you have something called a fair share that you need to account for so i say if you can look at those four things that is a really big part of the journey to net zero so where's your energy coming from right so you're typically from if you've got your business, you tend to have a centralized energy source yeah. uh, from the grid, or if you're an off-grid site, you may have some kind of generator. So that kind of brings us on to well, where is that energy in the grid being produced? Um, so at the moment, it's kind of a, it's a very big mix of natural gas, renewable energy sources, imported energy sources, um, nuclear energy, of course, and uh, foreign energy support. Um, it's a mix. It's it's a, it's like a cocktail. In essence. Yeah. I think of the grid as a cocktail. Um, can we can the grid become fully green? The answer is yes. Of course it can. Is it going to happen overnight? No. Of course it's not going to happen. Um, but if you look at historical, um, so it's called the Department for the Business and Energy Indu and Industry Bays, so to yeah. speak. Um, they publish their CO two uh, CO two equivalent for per kilowatt hour of the grid, and they have done for the past few years now, mm -hmm. you'll see a steady decline in that, right? So maybe two years ago, it was 0.23. Now it's 0.19. Next year, it could be 0.17. It is slowly coming down. And that's a representation of more renewable generation coming online, which is great. Mm -hmm. What we have to remember is that you can't put all your eggs in one basket. Because yeah. if the sun doesn't come out in the morning or the wind doesn't blow, then that's going to be a big problem. So what's going to be a massive part of that is having these uninterruptible power supplies. So mm. the grid always had these uninterruptible power supplies. What we could always rely on is you can combust methane and get electricity. Mm -hmm. You can combust coal and you can combust oil. And all these things will produce electricity, um, which is really important. So going forward, we're now going to some of what are called intermitt intermittent generation sources. Wind only produces when it's windy. Solar mm -hmm. only produces when it's sunny. Hydro only produces when it's, ti when it's tidal. Thankfully, 
the moon is always moving. If the moon stops orbiting, we've got completely different, <laughs> different problems on our hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but in terms of we look at the grid, then yeah, of course, of course we can we can say, you know what, I want solar because it's the cheapest, or I want wind because it's the most continuous, or I want hydro because we've got so much water in land. What I would say is if you look at the current grid, everything's got its risk managed. Mm-hmm. There's so many different generation sources. It makes it an absolute nightmare to calculate en- energy prices, because, yeah. <laughs> which is, hey, that's not my problem. That's yeah. the supplier's problem. Yeah, yeah, but what yeah. the way that you go forward is that you have a nice, diverse risk, uh, a diverse portfolio of generation sources that are all renewable, and we should be in a good position, especially with like large-scale batteries coming online. Yeah. My personal favorite idea well not idea it's not even an idea it's a reality is microgrid solutions so if you're a business yeah. you're always you should always be connected to the grid for your own security of supply right yeah. but what we what's now becoming more apparent is people are thinking let's get let's get our own little microgrids going something called a beyond the meter solution mm-hmm. let's put solar on the roof if we've got land and planning's not a problem Let's put some wind turbines up. Heck, I'm next to a really, really fast running river. Let's put a dam in there and get some hydropower coming in. And that's a beyond the meter uh, microgrid. And to me, it's a combination of the United Kingdom having more of its own decentralized microgrid solutions integrated with these more renewable grid supplies. Um, So that's a generation side of things. Second thing is efficiency. Look. There's a million ways you can be more efficient in your in your internal business. You've got mm-hmm. LED lighting, for example. Yeah, <laughs> you can put new insulation in if you want. You can do double glazing. You can have a look at is your voltage too high from the grid. There's all these different things that don't impact the actual output and productivity of a site, but mean it can have decreased energy supply. Mm-hmm. So when you've got a combination of more renewable generation coming into the building, and then the building either doing the same or even increasing its output, but actually having a net less consumption, then that's great. Now, the third and the third and the fourth aspects that I discussed at the start are much more difficult, right? So we're talking about a fleet. So if you've got a small car, you've got some small employee commuting, public transport, sure, electric vehicles, sure, um, that's easy enough. But if we're talking about a major logistics center, and we're talking about how do we get our emissions down? How do we do that? It's not cheap. That's a really big problem. And it's also the technology for HGV electrification is a is a big problem. Like EV cars are great because they're light. As soon as you put, as soon as it starts pulling a load, yeah, efficiency just yeah. goes through the floor. So that for me is a big challenge. And currently, from what my understanding, there's three big front runners to try and get there, right? And unfortunately, they're all more expensive than petrol and diesel, <laughs> which is really annoying. Um, you've got uh, electric vehicles, wonderful, great, going to be here, going to be a big part of the future. Need those HGVs to get a little bit more efficient. You've got hydro- hydro-treated vegetable oil, or HVO for short. It's the kind of stuff that you see the Mackey's trucks driving around, yeah, plastered yeah. all over the side saying... I'm a big advocate for HVO because genuinely it is a plug and play solution for diesel. Mm-hmm. It, 
at the end of the day, they're all alkenes and alkanes. It's yep. just how they became alkenes and alkanes is one is ancient decayed algae that's been sat underground for a long time. And the other one is a anthrop anthropogenic process of, um, of, of vegetable oil turned into diesel. It's great. Yep. It's, it's called, they call it green diesel. And it is. The only problem is, is it's not 100% renewable. It has 90% of the emissions of typical diesel, but yeah. it still has emissions. So it's not net zero, so to speak. But it's, you know, it's pretty good. And it's a lot cheaper. It, it, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good. Now, this is now the, the big fuel source that a lot of people want to talk about. And I try and steer clear of just because I'm not as excited about it as everyone else. And that's hydrogen. Yeah, always, um, always a big topic, right? So, so having worked in big consultancies, that some of the projects that I worked on towards the end of my tenure in my last place were around, you know, where solutions were starting to be thought out. So, hydrogen storage for things like data centers, and then to be able to feed off of that, hydrogen docking stations along the estuary and and across the Thames. So. They could start in they could start implementing a blended gas supply to the city that there's a you know part of the net zero framework is that within i think it's by 2027 or 2028 that the the they want to be able to provide up to five um gigawatts in the city of blended gas provision for businesses to then to be able to convert to biogas rather than using natural gas for their for their boilers look it's got a really important place so long as it's the right kind of hydrogen <laughs> i i don't actually think it's the right solution for that type of thing though personally because you know one of the things i think is that you know global logistics isn't going anywhere right so we're still going to need shipping and freight and airplanes to as part of the solution in the future and and you know from my limited scientific understanding of it all but you know i read a lot around these subjects obviously and it seems that that could be a potentially viable solution for those and in which case we should reserve the technology and the storage and the capacity for that and concentrate on other things that we can for other things right so of the academics i've spoken to they're most excited about hydrogen's application to remote power so mm -hmm. that would be things like fleet there would be things like shipping. Mm -hmm. There would be things like potentially even airplanes. Um, these are the things that people get excited about for hydrogen. But if we're talking about complete replacement of natural gas with hydrogen, um, it's not as straightforward as a that. Because absolutely not. <laughs> a, hydrogen is expensive. That thing yeah. is expensive. It's, expensive yeah, it's, crea it's creating it. If we can create it a lot cheaper, then obviously it would be, it would be easier. But... But again, it kind of goes with the, I guess the, you know, the nuclear technology was similar up front. That you know, the 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 cost versus benefit was 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 even in some of the actually, it's only very recently now, isn't it, with the experiments that have taken place in America that they've actually proved the viability that you can get more out than you put in from a small nuclear nuclear provision. Yeah, so that would be fusion technology. Yeah. That can be, it was like self-sustaining for something like twelve seconds, which yeah. is pretty cool. That's, yeah, that's 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 really great. I think it was done in the Oxford, some of the Oxford research facilities, um, which was really cool. Yeah. Um, the thing is with nuclear is we had something called World War Two, which really dramatically accelerated the research that went into nuclear reactors yeah, and, and yeah. stuff like this. Yeah, like you know that's 
that's a bit of a different kettle of fish in terms of intensity into research compared to what we have today into hydrogen. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong, the free market is very powerful. There's a lot of people out there with a lot of money that have a lot of interest in hydrogen being the next great fuel source. Yeah. But it's a completely different scale of of investigation, say, compared to what happened at the Oak Ridge Laboratories and stuff like this, compared to what's happening at research facilities uh, in different parts of the world. It's so the thing is with nu- what the point I'm making is that nuclear is a very mature technology and I'm personally pro nuclear. Mm-hmm. I I don't believe it is a sustainable technology. I believe it is what you would call semi sustainable. Mm. So there is part, waste and it's also pretty bad waste. So you've got yeah. A, B and C waste, right? You've got a waste that'll take a hundred thousand to a million years to decay. You have to put yeah. it deep underground and say, nobody go near this. Then you've got B waste, which, you know, they've got it up in Sellafield. They just shove it under the ground right next to C grade waste, mm-hmm. you know. So it, there is still waste and there is still lost land to that waste. It is completely uninhabitable at the end of the day because yeah. it will kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we actually look, so when we when we take that into the account, look, we've got an abundance of uranium. We've got an abundance of supply. Um, it's just heat, heating up water, making steam and turning a turbine that's actually pretty good mm-hmm. you know it's it, it's it's pretty low carbon it's not no carbon it's not renewable it's semi-renewable but we've got this waste and that's mm. a big problem so i believe in april 2003 uh sorry 2023 uh the government reclassified nuclear as being a renewable energy source i don't think that's quite right and not i wouldn't i wouldn't agree with that but that's mm. fine you know they're the government. I'm James Crosby. There's, <laughs> there's, there's different scales of influence here, right? Um, but look, we're in a position where nuclear is an is a, an interruptible power supply, mm. and we need those. When we're talking about all these renewable generators, a lot of them have intermittent intermittency problems. Yeah. Whereas nuclear can be generated all the time. So I kind of bring this back to the original question: What is the best green solution? And the answer is, there's not a single bullet. You're going to need to get them all together and get them working harmoniously to manage your risk and to uh, make sure that you've got power going to the grid. Yeah, um, I, think, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's, that's really a really poignant point around that because even, you know, one of the studies I've, I've, I've looked at and uh, you know I, I use in conversation a lot with people because I. I like the fact it's probably, you know, it's highly impractical, I would imagine, in many ways, and, and and smarter people than me can tell me how. But I know solar is, you know, and, and PV is something that you'll have a massive involvement in generally, you know, across your life. So those reports that kind of state that less than 2% of the landmass of the world could power all the energy that we use across the world just through a provision of solar. Yeah, it's great. It's just, can you distribute that energy to the place it needs to be at the time it needs to be used? So um, that's the, dis- the distribution and that that kind of that that's where the challenges sit. And that's that's that raises another point actually, linked back to what you said earlier around, you know, battery technology, storage, transmission. Because I think that's one of the prohibitive aspects at the moment in terms of not only the UK policy, but I think globally this probably exists to a great de- degree as well. Like. 
you know, there's some depressing things that you hear sometimes, like, you know, all of the wind farms have to be turned off in Scotland for a period of time because they've generated too much electricity and they don't have anywhere to put it, right? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like, you know, <laughs> well, other parts of the country or the world need that, so get it down here. And I know that, you know, the, the, the having worked with National Grid on, you know, on a number of projects, I know that the, there is significant investment in that in that interconnection through down into north yorkshire and then they're they're building big storage provision to be able to not waste that energy right but but that must happen on a catastrophically global scale right Eh? i mean so let's let's say the perfect scenario is you fill all the sunny parts of the world with solar and transport it all to the transport it throughout the world like if when when we're talking about building a solar pv system for a ground mount system for every hundred meters, it's about a hundred grand. <laughs> That's a lot of money. So if you want to trench an entire, if you want to trench all these connectors all throughout the world, and that's a lot of money that people would rather spend on other things, yeah. so to speak. So not only, so you've also got line losses. So the further away from your energy supply you are, the more you lose. Yeah. So you, so when you end up doing these calculations, people are like. So I'm gonna gonna go uh, get some more oil out of the ground. Yeah, okay. So te- technically achievable, practically difficult to implement. I guess is is Pretty kind much. of the kind of the the upshot of that. I think, you know, I'm, I won't go into detail about it or 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 give you know reference people in specifically by name. But there was a very interesting you know lecture given to Oxford University uh, relatively recently around this this agenda right and around that you know western countries are the uk is is net less than two percent global contribution to the current carbon output right so but historically we've been far more than that so we've benefited from being a dirty kind of producer to transition us into a cleaner way of doing it right now the west has benefited from that it wouldn't be just i guess uh, in some ways to say to the developing countries who are not really interested in this agenda as much because they're not in a sort of mind forward position to do it you know in 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 from a political and commercial sphere i think in that way and again we get into like big kind of political aspects of things but i think that is that is again one of the one of the potential areas that if the best thing the west could do is provide clean easy to access cheap electricity for the rest of the world so this is a really interesting point that was actually addressed directly head-on at cop 23 the most recent cop um and so cop 23 a lot of people would say not really anything happened the biggest, sorry okay. uh, pardon cop 27 wasn't it the most recent cop, one? the most recent cop 27 sorry not cop 26 was the that's last fine one. just just yeah. just say it again as say at cop 27 and then the editor will get rid of that bit um, so that's really interesting because this was directly um, brought up at the most recent COP, COP27. So um, a lot of people said that COP27 may have been a little bit of a nothing happened situation, but actually um, a really big thing to come out of it was the rep- it was in essence uh, environmental reparations agreements from developed nations to lesser developed nations. So it's it's. This is the thing. So this is the really big part of that policy is it's really good that they are now recognizing that there is environmental impacts being caused to lesser developed nations 
because more developed nations caused all of this outpouring during the industrialization. Yes. As a result, these payments are now being made to these lesser developed nations. Now, the big thing that kind of goes back to what you said is it's all well and good to say, let's provide all these lesser nations with, um, sorry, lesser developed or lesser, uh, with less strong economies is the right way to say it. Um, let's provide them with a load of uh, renewable energy generation. They don't want renewable energy generation. They want money. And the question then becomes the whole point of COP27 is to advance the climate. So if you're agreeing for reparations payments, what are these reparations payments going to be contributing towards? In the spirit of COP, Mm -hmm. it probably should be into renewable generation. Mm -hmm. But in the spirit of you can't afford malaria uh, drugs for the entirety of your population, probably going to go there so Mm. this is the really interesting part about uh developed nations impacting lesser developed nations before they had a chance to industrialize and that is i guess is is the thing that it's easy for the people who would you know the sort of climate deniers and the you know the people that don't think this is a gen this agenda is as important as it really is then it gives them that kind of fact and figure to lean into. It pains me when I hear anyone say, yeah, well, the UK only produces 2% of, of the world's carbon. Well, yeah, I know we do, but we haven't. You know, historically, <laughs> yeah, we have probably contributed you know, to more than 60% of the overall damage. You know, it's yeah. kind of... Well, I mean, not only from the UK, but probably from the British Empire as well at the end of the day. Yeah, so... which has gone and, yeah, and gone and implemented all of those bad practices elsewhere. Yeah, so, you know, just because we didn't, just because we did it first doesn't mean we did it best. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is, it, it is a really interesting kind of provision. And I think that, you know, I, the, the kind of upshot I take from, from that discussion there, right, is that it's always going to need a blended approach because we've got such a diverse need for energy use in the world that what powers buildings, what powers our corporate, you know, sort of environment, what, what, what our local travel, our international travel and how we move goods are all separate requirements and all things that need either their own solution or need to tap into a blended solution that will support all of it. So a lot of these, a lot of people would, they wouldn't describe themselves as climate deniers. They would say that they're climate protagonists, right? So just because the climate, just because the UK said it's going to do something doesn't really mean it's going to, doesn't mean it's going to make a difference, right? Yeah. If you look at the Office of National Statistics, our CO2 emissions from the UK and foreign territories has actually been decreasing since 2009. Mm Mm-hmm. We're still net emitters, but we are less net emitters than we used to be. But the UK as a whole, sorry, the world as a whole is still increasing. Um, Last year, it was up 0.9% relative to the previous year. So Mm. look, those are facts. Those are facts. And when people say, so everyone else is doing it, what's the point in the UK doing it? And I say, because it's the right thing to do. <laughs> like, do you want to do nothing? You want it to hit 8.5 degrees warming by 2100 and all yeah. the seas to boil? <laughs> that sounds fun, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and the, and also, it's net zero by 2050. Um, if, 
if there's places like for example china like look china are very heavy emitters but they're also very fast at building cities and changing their infrastructure mm. is if there's a major event that impacts them that's directly attestable to climate change um and they've got good incentive to become net zero they will do it in double time they will absolutely do it in double time. So just because they're not doing it right now doesn't mean they're not going to do it. <laughs> and I think the other thing that goes that goes somewhat unreported, I think, is that if you look at some of the global projects that all of the, you know, that that where you get things like America, the UK, France, Germany, China, and Russia all working together on a similar on a on the same project, right? And all contribute in funding and expertise and knowledge like the nuclear fusion is one of those aspects where that global drive to get it right is is there and but we don't in my opinion that's not reported enough right it, you know we we get the sort of them versus us thing but not really the fact that on a global level this is discussed and it is policy you know policy commitments are made and and countries are working together and i think helping the populace understand that a little bit more might help us to, you know, change our own behaviour somewhat. Well, so in my head, there's two great global collaborations, right? One of them is the non-proliferation treatment um, related to nuclear armament, right? That was, it happened. Thank mm -hmm. God it happened. Otherwise, we may not be having this conversation today, kind of. <laughs> yeah. that, is a, that is a brilliant example of the world actually working together for the mm. betterment. And now these kind of, uh, major climate movements, be it the United Nations race to net zero, for example, this is these are great initiatives where the world is actually starting to work together. Um, but un unfortunately, the things that unite us, um, which are huge, these are huge, huge global issues that are uniting us, are largely overshadowed by, uh, well, Russia and the US don't get on, they've never really gotten on. Uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Oh, Russia supplying gas to China, and China are taking that gas. Oh, um, there's these major geopolitical disagreements, and everyone's got different sides. You know, these are daily things. These are things that happen every single day, and these are things that people think about all the time because it most closely relates to how they identify. Mm -hmm. But these major, major movements—the non-proliferation and the United Nations race to net zero—that was a single moment of this was a really good thing that happened today. That will continue to happen forever hopefully but unfortunately it does get overshadowed by these so to speak geopolitical tensions indeed they do so that kind of brings me around to a to a point around barriers i think we've discussed a lot of the barriers already right and but if i take my own experiences and and think from a uk perspective and 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 what i've been trying to achieve you know through the various roles I've held in my life that um planning in the UK is difficult right in terms of into because some of the solutions like even fitting solar and PV onto onto roof spaces can become difficult in terms of gaining proper planning permission you know wind turbines are a bone of absolute contention everywhere you know where you've got the, the the UK is probably the worst country in the world for nimbyism, you know, where where everybody wants a more sustainable world, but they don't want to look at it. You know, it's kind of that that that's a big barrier. I see that as a big barrier. I think I think the funding and 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 that kind of aspect is is getting better, but also the cost, right? Because like you said earlier, you know, like a, a big a big solar array, PV array in the ground is an expensive provision, right? And it's 
but the cost of those have tumbled haven't they over the years that you know i know from a, a, a the cost to build an onshore wind farm today for example is about 120 percent less than it was 15 years ago you know you so see you've got is that is that is that transition happening in in the kind of pv world as well so i'm gonna i'm gonna just just to make sure that i definitely get this right i'm going to talk about things that i truly specialize in sure so i truly specialize in on-site generation related to rooftop solar uh, beyond beyond the meter wind mm-hmm. and beyond the we- meter hydro to a much lesser extent. Those are the three areas that I can talk about with confidence. Utility scale, that's not really my area of expertise because it's very, very, very red tapey, very drawn out. A lot of chefs all trying to make the same recipe, but in a different yeah. way. It's, that's not my bag. My bag is uh, microgrids, rooftop solar, wind, hydro. So... Mm-hmm. Solar is probably the best one, right? So we can talk about, there's two key barriers that I come into every day. One of them is red tape. That's just legislation, dot on the I's, crossing the T's. Yeah. And then the other one is actual capability of the grid to take it. So I'll break this down. In rooftop solar, you're actually permitted development now. So what that means is you don't require a full planning application unless it is a protected or listed building. Mm-hmm. So long as it's under 999 kilowatt peak, which is marvelous. That's mm-hmm. a huge, huge barrier to, to entry gone, um, which is which is great. Um, the other barrier that could be in place is, of course, these things are expensive. Mm-hmm. But this is what you alluded to earlier, right? So the biggest advancement in solar is not only the slight increase in efficiency in panel, but absolutely the slashing of the cost to gen- to, to build solar panels, inverters, and mounting systems. Mm. That's absolutely come down, as well as the technology going improving. Mm-hmm. As a result, it's actually a... Some people call it a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to tell people what to think, but I'm going to say a lot of people say it is a no-brainer because... It will last for 20 to 25 years. It is green. It has a little bit of embodied carbon, but at the end of the day, it's silicon wafers with a little bit of aluminium. It's not too bad. It overcomes its its savings, overcome its embodied carbon normally mm-hmm. within a year or two, which is really great. And C, it's technically cost-free electricity once you've paid it off. Mm. Or you can look at it in another way, which is the levelized cost of electricity, um, which is how much does the electricity per kilowatt hour cost for the lifetime of the system. So that's the install cost, the equipment costs, the maintenance costs, right? So when you take that onto account and divide that by the total kilowatts produced over the lifetime of the system, talking about four to five p a kilowatt. <laughs> if the grid is currently between twenty and thirty p, yeah, it's. <laughs> Re- replicate that anywhere else right like there we go so that's why solar the solar industry is booming and it should be it deserves to be it's a great piece of technology i agree um the big problem is big problem is not to do with the red tape le- legislation it's to do with the grid it's genuinely to do with the grid so we as the united kingdom have a national grid you all know this that's where we mm-hmm. get our electricity from um, and that grid has what's called a capacity. Mm-hmm. There's only so many electrons that can flow down those wires at a single point. Now, what's really important to know about solar is that if you don't consume it on site, it will go back to the grid. 
So the grid has to prepare for what's called a doomsday scenario, whereby all the electrons that are generated by this system can be flooded back into the grid. And if that happens, the grid needs to be able to take that on. Now, that's not necessarily a problem. It's not a problem at all at residential level because you don't even need to apply for the DNO because it's called a nuisance volume and they can handle a nuisance volume. Yeah, like it, it doesn't have the capacity to cause a problem. Exactly. But at these larger rooftop systems, mm. say if you're installing 50 kilowatt plus, that can be problematic. Right. So that's, and at the end of the day, the district network operator, these are the people that look after the grids in different mm -hmm. parts of the United Kingdom and the independent district network operators. Mm -hmm. In essence, they are a monopoly. They can do what they, they control the grid. They look after the grid. And if they say no, then no means no. Genuinely, you can't do anything about yeah. it. That for me is the greatest barrier is not the DNOs themselves, because fair enough, they're just doing their job, is the actual capacity of the grid. Sure. Yeah. That is easily the biggest problem yeah. uh, with solar. So look, with wind, we've got the same DNO problems, same with hydro, same DNO problems, but then you also add in the planning problems. <laughs> with <But> they, <laughs> we we have another chat another Another way that that transposes itself in a, in a real estate world as well, and also a, a, another challenge is so. For example, you might have a traditional kind of warehouse operation in the UK. So you've got a large warehouse. Yep. So currently gas heated for the two people that work down in the corner, and the rest of it storage. So it shouldn't be gas heated, but anyway, like we'll get we'll get onto that. And then there's a double story office, and those are gas boilers and radiators, right? So yep. Off the bat, the first solution would be change to an, an electric provision for the heating, right? Fine. You can't do that in the warehouse because that would cost you, you know, a million pounds a week to, to heat it, right? Yep. So so what people do in that in that sense is find an alternative, improve the fabric, change the practice, do something, but get rid of the gas in the warehouse, it's not going to work, right? But then what people don't realize then about the, the provision within the offices is you can't just change an electric system and power your radiators. That's not going to work, right? Because you won't you won't reach the same temperatures. So there are there are things you can do, but that's hugely expensive to be able to do it. So you're gonna have to change the whole heating infrastructure, right? To be able to do that as number one. Hugely disruptive, very difficult to do, blah, 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 blah. Now, on top of that, how much electric provision does that warehouse have? You know, how much actual electric provision comes, electricity provision comes in from the grid to that estate? You know, and if every one of those 10 warehousing units all change to a, a wholly electrical solution, the actual work required to up the capacity of the industrial estate, dig up everything, put new cables, you know, it's it's all of that inconsequential decision making and then it gets into planning and then where you're looking at you know the outline cost of being a 60 grand like for like replacement because of all the planning issues the having to do the infrastructure you're now looking at half a million to a million pounds easily <laughs> when people ask me about degasification i say great get yourself some air source heat pump get yourself some ground source heat pumps and while you still can get yourself some grid capacity <laughs> 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 because everyone's going to be doing what you're talking about doing right there and there's not enough capacity to go around even so... panel heaters you know even even changing radiators to panel heaters there won't be enough power in a lot of buildings to be able to to make that conversion outright without making some power changes to the building no i mean so what you 
with with heat pumps, right? You've either got an air source for heat pump or a ground source heat pump. I like a ground source heat pump because you've got a fuel source, which is the ground, which is great. And that ground is pretty much always the same temperature. And they're fascinating as well. The technology is absolutely fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I'm I'm a geologist by training, so I love geothermal anomalies. So if you're near Bath, get yourself a uh, ground source heat pump because you'll always have great heating because it's a geothermal anomaly. Say like the bath spas. That's why bath spas are there. It's a local anomaly, right? Um, But if you're say in Cambridge, which is a thermal cold spot, then yeah, (laughs) it's not going to be quite as good as it would be otherwise. Also homes, homes wise as well. It's a difficult solution as well, isn't it? Because the amount of, you know, you kind of need half an acre really uh, to mess about with, to be able to install it properly up front. You don't need that for its ongoing running, but to put it in, you need that. So this is one of my biggest barriers I find with people is if you've got green fingers, so to speak, you're really into gardening. They don't want people coming in and completely ripping their very beautiful garden garden to shreds. So my fiance is an avid, is an avid gardener, right? Um, I can't, I couldn't look her in the eye and say, we're going to put a ground source heat pump in there. She'll say, what, what, but we've just started growing strawberries. It's taken me seven (laughs) years to cultivate this. (laughs) Exactly. That's the, (laughs) yeah. So, um, yeah, the other problem, like for one of a better phrase is that the heat pump industry can be a little bit, um, wild west. Yeah. That's, that's fair to say. And it's a few of these cowboys that give everyone else a bad name. And I'm, I'm not, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you feel offended by that. I wasn't trying to offend you. If you're good at your job, there are people that are very good at their job, but it means that the, um, the national perception of heat pumps is they're expensive and they break. A lot of people have that opinion mm. and that's not necessarily fair. Mm. What, what happened is you had some bad installers using bad kit, t- trying to take some cake and running away. Like, not really understanding as well i think that the because the, even today you know it's it's very difficult to source in both domestic and commercial actually commercial is probably better because there's more professionalism but within the domestic market it's actually quite difficult to source a a, a really credible reliable contractor to to help you with those types of more sustainable solutions we found a couple now that we that we work with that are that are really really good and you know on 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 future podcasts those will you know those will form part of that because they are partners with us as, a, as an organization as well i guess what i'm finding is the growth of the consultant is is so i'm a consultant like look i'm finding myself to be a little bit more desired than i was maybe a year or two ago mm. because people have heard bad stories and they say um james you've done this before you've used people before and apparently it's gone well i can i can say it's it's gone you can well. attest to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can attest to that. Um, so can you make sure that this unregulated market, that you're getting the right people for the job, and if it doesn't go well, then your reputation's in the toilet and you'll never do this again. It's like, I mean, I technically have not that much risk, so of course I can do that for you. <laughs> um, and that's beautiful. It's wonderful. Uh, for me, it's really bad for everyone else. Yeah, the, 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 well, it's, you know, it's, it's what we need. I mean consultancy is a is always a key solution to the global problems right around infrastructure around all of these things and you know i would say that because that's my background i come from you know, a, <laughs> yeah. large, a large consultancy background anyway but 
but genuinely one of the challenges we have there is accessibility and i think that's where some of the government expectation is around trickle down on these things right because I, again I, you know my head goes back to buildings obviously and you work in the built environment as well so um from a building if we take it from from the from the building's perspective that um access to the advice that's needed right now to properly understand and to form a a, a long-term holistic strategy isn't cheap so you you know it's owned and ma- primarily by the big consultancies you know there are four there are some smaller ones out there that are, that are catching up and and doing it but what we need is that part of the market to get it right and then create a process systems access to data information and, and, yeah. and everything to trickle down to the rest of the market so when i think about what a consultant is right a consultant is someone that you employ their time or employ their expertise and experience so what what kind of knowledge do you have what kind of experience have you got and what kind of network have you got that is what a consultant is mm-hmm. right the ability to get stuff done and get stuff done right um and if you're if you're if you can get those two things done then you're worth your fees what happens is that when you get bad consultancies using bad installers and then before you know it everyone's like well this is just a terrible industry mm. this is just awful <laughs> and and look there's a big big industry of consultants right big industry yeah and um, there's going to be some good ones and there's going to be some bad ones. Um, and you can normally tell pretty quickly, I find. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> Having worked with both in the past <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in numerous different ways. Um, okay, just just before we just before we wrap up, I think. The, uh, sorry, I'll get my I'll get my thought together. I'm just thinking how to frame this the best. Uh, so a big part of this is going to be us right it's everybody it's the general public and one of the reasons why we started this podcast you know it's sponsored by our our kind of co- commercial operation that it's because we genuinely have a passion you know as a leadership team we want everyone to be talking about what's going to make a difference to the world and how do we you know so we see this as our little contribution towards that we'll find interesting people to have interesting conversations in the hope that it connects with somebody in a way that helps them to make a better decision in life or, you know, change a couple of things that they do. And if we influence, you know, 10 people per episode, then, you know, it's an amazing achievement in the, in that sense. So what's the, what do you think are the best tools that we have as an industry or as professionals to, to really help get the public on board? Because what we know doesn't work is preaching to them, right? So sitting around in the pub and at all dinner tables we attend and going, I'm holier than Yao, you know, you drive, <laughs> you drive this, you're how You just see the eyes glaze over straight away. <laughs> exactly. So what do you feel are the, are the key triggers and points that will help us as an industry, as a government, as policymakers, as a world, really drive everybody's connection and commitment to the agenda? So I don't work for Adidas. I've got some Adidas cricket shoes. But one thing that really stuck out to me was when I bought my new pair of cricket shoes, it was a, made a big deal of these shoes are made of recycled plastic, right? And Adidas, in my opinion, is pretty cool. Like a lot of my favorite footballers and cricketers and rugby players use Adidas stuff, mm-hmm. right? They're making it, They and now they're making recycling cool. They're making environmental responsibility cool, right? So... 
there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. You've always got to have science leading the way, right? Yeah. That's, you've got to have science leading the way. But if you actually want to get, in my opinion, if you want to get the public involved, yeah, there's a good, there's a great place for museums have a really important role. We as, as, as um, podcasters have a really great role to talk uh, with other professionals and members of the public. Mm-hmm. And, for, but for me, the, biggest platform is just people making sustainability cool and if adidas want to make it cool then that's great (laughs) i cannot agree more with that and you know recently i had exactly the same experience with with the same brand that i bought my first pair of golf shoes and lo and behold the box came and boldly in bezeled everywhere on it is these are sustainable and it tells yeah. exactly how and exactly why and when you look at the product you know you can see it's a high quality good product yeah it's made from recyclable material you know so it's achievable everyone can do it i guess the price point is is where that sticks you know again if we think on a global scale but but yeah i think that's a good point making sustainability cool that's probably going to be the name of the title for this podcast now because i like that (laughs) (laughs) brilliant well i think that's yeah i think that that's probably a good parting gift from you james all right thank you so much paul it was really (laughs) enjoyable really enjoyable thank you very much for joining us thank you very much everyone for listening as always we're here to bring you interesting conversations so we can all keep talking about the importance of creating a more sustainable future for everybody Thanks again, James, for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time on Carbon Times. Got to find the end button now. Where's the stop recording?